we've sold women this lie. We've sold women this idea that if they just ask for things the right way, or if they just present themselves the right way, then the world is their oyster and they can have anything they want. The problem with that is that it places the burden back on women. It creates this sense that we are responsible for getting or not getting what we want and that we alone are the ones who can fix it instead of thinking of it as a structural challenge. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Alicia Menendez. She is the anchor of American Voices on MSNBC, the author of the book, The Likeability Trap, and the host of the Latina to Latina podcast. Prior to joining MSNBC, Alicia was a contributor for HuffPost, Fusion TV, Vice, and Bustle, among others. And before she was a journalist, she was in the politics and advocacy space, working for organizations like Rock the Boat and Democracia USA. Alicia, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Danielle, thank you so much for making me blush. <laughs> Can you correct my horrible pronunciation on Dem- Democracia USA? It's like, I, it's so bad and I can hear it. It's Democracia, but I have to tell you, you have, one of, you have one of those names, Danielle, that also brings out my Jersey accent. So now we're even. <laughs> I appreciate that. So I have known you for a long time in, in different roles. I'm excited to get into the conversation today. Before we get into it. We like to do a little warm up round, lightning round, quick questions, quick answers. You ready? I'm terrible at this, but yes, let's go. Okay. First job you got paid for? Babysitting. What languages do you speak? English and some Spanish, but I would not call myself fluent. When's the last time you negotiated for yourself? It has been a long, long time because the nature of my work is that you hire someone else to negotiate for you. Although maybe I've negotiated like a date night or something in my personal life. So in in that case, every day. That counts. Do you have any embarrassing on-air moments? I mean, innumerable embarrassing on-air moments. What comes to mind most is that during the pandemic, I was broadcasting out of my garage and constantly I would get producers in my ear being like, is that your baby? Is your baby wailing in the background? I was like, let's keep going. Yeah. There's nowhere for that baby to go. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I've never gotten to ask someone this question, but were you partly like, oh, this is cool being able to like do a show out of my garage and maybe I could get used to it? Or were you so happy to go back to a studio? I was so happy to go back to a studio. I mean, my kids were very little when that was happening. I was still nursing when that was happening. So I was happy not to be schlepping breast milk back and forth over the Hudson River and grateful to be safe, you know, of course. But I was doing my hair and makeup in a bathroom with a one-year-old and a three-year-old and getting nasty comments like, she's not even trying hard enough on her eyeliner. And it's like, I'm just trying to survive people. (laughs) Yeah. What is something we can't Google about you? 
I don't know. I feel like there's a lot out there, but I do feel like the thing that always surprises people most who've not met me in person is just how sensitive I am and that the sort of vibe you get on TV or as a persona is much more assertive and direct. And in reality, I am conflict averse and super sensitive to everyone's feelings. That is interesting. The conflict averse part definitely takes me by surprise. We're going to get into that. Um, what is the last show you binge watch? I am in the middle of the bear. I am too. So that's up there. But I, I binge watched Game of Thrones when I was nine months pregnant and it was a terrible mistake. <laughs> oh, second only to reading Handmaid's Tale while a week postpartum. So I watched Game of Thrones, the whole series, but I don't think I could binge watch it. You care less about the whole thing. That was what was interesting was it actually, I didn't think it was meant to be binged because I just was moving through it so quickly and without the weeks in between where I was forced to wonder what if and to think about the characters, I wasn't attached Mm -hmm. to anyone or to anything. What's one product you can't live without? It would be my super group SPF. They have a good invisible SPF that I find I actually luxuriate in putting on every day. I agree with that. And I also just tried their sun lipstick, which I did not know was a lipstick. And then I was like, oh, this this really brightened my face yeah, up. Those are the types of things that I try to throw in all my bags so that I just have it. Last lightning round question. What is a news story or something you've reported on lately that you didn't think got enough attention? I always think that what is happening at the U.S.-Mexico border doesn't get enough attention and is often improperly framed, in part because we don't spend enough time talking about why it is that people come to the U.S.-Mexico border seeking asylum or hoping to immigrate to the United States. And so it's a combination of time that is spent on it and then even when the time is spent, how it is that that story is told and the extent to which we frame it as a humanitarian crisis above all else. So let's get into how you became you. Ooh, big question. (laughs) Your dad, Bob Menendez, has been in politics since you were young. He's currently a U.S. senator. I cannot imagine what it is like to be the child of a political family parent. How did that being in or near the political realm, like politics is is kind of a family business, how did that shape you growing up? I grew up in this place called Union City, New Jersey. It is the most densely populated city per square mile in the United States. It's where all of the Cubans, including my paternal grandparents who fled Cuba, the ones who didn't go to Miami, it was the second place that people went. And my dad's story of coming up through politics is really rooted in Union City. It's rooted in sort of being a kid in high school who was offered honors classes, but told you'll need to buy your own books and people saying, well, we'll give you the books, but like you shut up about it. Don't tell anybody else. And him saying, well, that's not fair. If I'm going to do it, then all the other kids who also are eligible, but don't have the means should be able to do it. And so he was the mayor of our town. He was in the state assembly and state Senate here in New Jersey. He went to Congress when I would have been about eight years old. And then more recently, he ran for the U.S. Senate. And so my experience of being raised by an elected official is very much rooted in community and rooted in that sense of service and people that you serve. I don't know anything very different. 
my mom was a public school educator. And so we would run into people in the supermarkets all the time who would want to talk to my mom because they had this fondness for my mom. My mom taught sex ed in the 80s and 90s, which was a very interesting time to be teaching sex ed. Wait, you got to pause. What was it like? So your dad is politician, and your mom is teaching sex ed. My mom's teaching sex ed and people would come up to her all the time and be like, you taught me the only useful thing I learned in high school. How did you react to that? I, I take it back. I can't imagine being the child of a sex ed teacher. <laughs> the composite though is that both of my parents were leading lives of service. Everything was about like, how do you give back? How are you in community with other people? So I both understand as an interviewer the instinct to, to be asked of my dad because it is this very unusual experience. But to me, it shaped me less than Union City or my mom being a public school educator. And so are there things like remembering being able to go to a state of the union when I was young or going to take your daughter to work day and being able to sit in congressional committees? Like, yes, there are strange little pieces of it. But the thing that is most informative now that I am in my 40s and thinking about it all as a grown woman is that that rooting in service and that rooting in community. The other part of it is, and I'm asking this given your work in gender politics around likability, which we're going to get to. I mean, politicians definitely have a reputation for wanting to and, and needing to be likable in order to win. Did that kind of interest start with seeing your dad run or seeing, I guess, the, the business side of politics? My interest and curiosity in likability did not begin there. I do think, however, Danielle, that it framed the way that I thought about likability. I think, you know, you, you scroll through Instagram and there are a lot of memes that are like, you do you, and like, don't care what anybody says. That's nice. That's not actually how the world works. People like doing business with people they like. People like being in partnership with people they like. That is a, a reality of the world that we are constantly working around. And so I think the fact that my dad was an elected official meant that I saw in a very material way the way that likability informs something like employment, right? I mean, every two years as a member of Congress, people decide whether or not they want to re-up your term in office. So to me, likability became imperative to survival. It became imperative to being able to continue doing the things that you wanted to do and to being effective. You know, you can stay and do the job and get more done if people like you. Let's talk about your path. Why media and not the politics side? I spent my whole life thinking that I would basically replicate my father's life, that I would go to college, that I would go to law school, I would practice law maybe for a few years in some capacity, and then I would run for public office. I did not truly, outside of maybe musical theater, think of a plan B. Was musical theater the plan B? No, but that's the thing. Musical theater is like not a plan B. <laughs> so what that left me with was, was no real plan B. And I worked on a political campaign right out of college. And I remember realizing that we had this communication shop that was putting out a, a message of the day or, you know, this is what the campaign is focused on. And there was also a media apparatus that decided whether or not they were going to run with that as the story of the day or if they believed that the story of the day was something completely different. And it was the first time that I fully internalized the, the power of the media to set 
agendas to change hearts and minds, to impact the way that people think about the world around them. And that became very interesting to me and compelling and had me put law school on hold. And I got my first job in media. This is how you're going to know that I'm very, very old by going on Craigslist, where we used to find jobs. No. Yeah. And I found a job as a guest booker at RNN TV in Westchester, New York, and did the reverse commute for a year, year and a half. And I learned a lot about television just by sitting in a newsroom and observing how other people did their work and asking a lot of questions. And it started me on my path. Obviously, media and politics go hand in hand, but there's also a lot of conflict inherent in the relationship of covering it. You know, you talked about thinking that you were going to be like a mini version of your dad. How was that perceived by your family when you decided to take a slightly different course? I always think it is hard for those of us who are type A and have had clarity our entire lives. Like I've been 30 years old since I was five years old. In fact, I've not known what to do with myself for the last 10 years because I was so appropriately 30 for my entire life. Yes. So of course there was some concern that all of a sudden I was off-roading or off-path. I don't think it was so much a concern about my going into media or, or any resistance to my going into media so much as Do you really know what you want and do you really know how to go after it and how to get it? And I think it took a long time. I think it took years and and perhaps even not something like getting my first media job at HuffPost Live, which was the Huffington Post's first streaming network, a, a concept that was amazing and ahead of its time. It was probably something like being a guest on The View that all of a sudden made it real to my family that this was a viable alternative to the thing I had always said I wanted. Let's talk about the likability trap. So you write this book in 2019 and you give name to a term that I think women have felt for a really long time. Also, if you've seen Barbie, I think America Ferrer really captures it. Nailed it. Nailed it in a different way. Why did you write it? I originally imagined writing a book that was like an eat, pray, love for likability that I, as a person who cared a lot about being well-liked, had entered my 30s, had realized that there was a psychological and personal cost to the fact that I cared so much about others' opinions and that I would eat gelato and do yoga and learn to let it go. That would have been a much more fun book to write. What I learned as I interviewed women for the book was that, yes, there are a lot of women like me who care very much about what other people think of them, but there are also a lot of women out there who don't give a damn, who are themselves always unapologetically. And what became interesting to me was even they feel they pay a price for being so brazenly themselves. And that to me became an interesting conundrum. Okay, if you're like me and you do what society tells women to do, which is to care about what other people think of you, then you're giving up a part of yourself. If you don't do that, then you still may be penalized in the form of promotions, opportunities. And so that's what I decided to focus on. And the more I focused on it, the more I realized we've sold women this lie. We've sold women this idea that that if they just ask for things the right way or if they just present themselves the right way, then they the world is their oyster and they can have anything they want. 
And the problem with that is that it places the burden back on women. It creates this sense that we are responsible for getting or not getting what we want and that we alone are the ones who can fix it instead of thinking of it as a structural challenge. The more that I've become aware of this, and when I say aware, it's like you you feel it, but without a name mm-hmm. or without calling it out, it's kind of like this nebulous thing that at least I felt like was just me. At the same time, I don't know if I see change coming from it yet. Taking a step back, like what has given you hope or given you like, man, this is just going to, like, I don't know what's going to actually help with this since the book has come out. Just say all of the Amazon reviews say something very similar about the fact that this is like, this book is good, but it's depressing because it is an intractable problem to try to solve. I do have a glimmer of hope though, which is during the past presidential election, I witnessed something that I'd never seen before, which is there were a number of women, specifically women of color, whose names were in contention for the vice presidential nomination. And what you watched happen was all these women sort of go out there, Stacey Abrams, Kamala Harris. People would ask, do you want to be vice president? Or, you know, your name has been circulated as a, as a potential nominee for vice president. And ordinarily, anyone would say, oh, no, not me. I'm focused on blah, blah, blah. No. These women said, yes. I would be so honored to be nominated and I would 100% do it. And let me tell you why I am the best person for this job. And then they would say, and whoever he chooses, I will support that person. And the lesson to me there was one, that the stage was set because Biden had been very clear that he was going to choose a woman as his running mate. So there wasn't a question about that. It wasn't as though one of the women was making the argument for herself that she was viable. They were all doing it. So it created no point of contrast. And I think that is a glimmer of the future we want to move to, right? When you take all of those additional elements of otherness off the table and you are just able to operate in a world, you're like, I'm great. I'm going to tell you why I'm great. And if it's not me, I'm going to support her. But that question of women advocating for themselves and by advocating for themselves becoming less likable, it was just taken out of the equation. And that to me is what we want to be moving to. You talked about, and and you mentioned it a little bit, what can happen when women are like, I don't care about being likable. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, right? What happens or what have you felt in what you've struggled with? Like really caring about being likable and also owning that. What are some of the negative effects, either personally or, or professionally, you've seen on that side? First of all, there's just a toll every night when I put my head down where I feel the need to chronicle every awkward social interaction that I've had that day. So there's that just time and energy that got sucked up. For me, it was a time when I was, it might have been the first time I was on The View. I was nervous because it was The View. And I kept asking people, other hosts, producers, what makes a good guest? Like, tell me what to do. How can I be good? And everyone kept telling me the same thing. They kept saying, just be yourself. Just be yourself. And part of what I realized is that for me, as a people pleaser and as someone who cared about being well, like I had no idea who that was. I was 29 or I was 30, and I knew who I was when I was with my then boyfriend. I knew who I was when I was with my friends from college. I knew who I was when I was with my coworkers. But I didn't understand how all of that integrated into one person. And so I walked out on set, and like the room is pumping with music, and people are standing up and cheering, and they're saying your name like this. And I just froze because I 
didn't know which of myself I was supposed to show up as. And I answered every question as tersely as possible in the hopes of getting off that stage as quickly as possible. And I think being a public person, which I would argue many more of us are now public people than we were 20 or 30 years ago, in part because of the advent of social media. And so I felt that there was a performance price that I paid for it. And I also felt that in a more relatable context in an office, I was having trouble leading my team. I was having trouble asking for the things that I needed in a way that was kind, clear, and direct, and actually led to efficient outcomes, as opposed to dancing around things or the first time saying, however you want to do, it's fine. And then you know, reworking entire press releases when the kinder and better thing to do would have from the start to have been clear. But I think for a long time, I did not know how to do that in a way that felt kind and felt like I'm not going to alienate people by being this direct. I think a lot of people, a lot of women go on that journey. What helped you personally start to find your way? Because it's often viewed as kind of like this paradox, like you can either be nice or you can be direct. And I really think I've felt it as a leader and as an executive that it's saving people time if you're telling them how to be better. Like no one wants to show up and not be good or feel good about what they're doing every day. What helped you? I realize I've I've, I've skipped over an important point, which is this is not perception or in our heads. This is a very well-documented phenomenon that a woman can be too warm, too cold. She's almost never just right that in showing up warm, that's how people expect women to show up, but it's not how we expect leaders to show up when we are direct and assertive, uh, when we advocate for the things we want or need. We may be seen as a leader, but we lose warmth points and then people don't see us as likable. And so those things come into conflict in a very real way all the time. Writing the book certainly helped me. I hired an executive coach, which I highly recommend to anyone who finds themselves at an inflection point, because sometimes what I needed was my own behavior reflected back at me and then asked the powerful question, which was this really kind? Was this really in the best interest or service of the person you were working with? Or was this simply to ameliorate your own discomfort? And sometimes that is something that you need an outsider to be able to ask of you. And then I think a lot of it is trial and error, trying it on for size and figuring out how you can retain the part of you that is warm and communal while also saying, this is what I want to need and I need it by Friday at 3 p.m. How has your relationship with likability changed since you not only started writing about it, but, but started talking about it? I would love to say that I have healed myself and I am at the end of this incredible journey, but I am not. What I noticed when I was writing the book and has become true in my own life is that one thing that didn't happen is no one ever got older and cared more about likability. There is a certain experience of walking through the world as a woman where the older you get, the more you give up on this notion that you can please everyone and be likable to everyone. And so I definitely find that happening for myself. I'm raising two daughters. And so it is really interesting to watch all of these challenges pop up again with a three-year-old and a six-year-old and how they navigate friend dynamics and um, who is the leader on the block. And really trying to find ways to articulate in an age-appropriate way 
a concept that I don't think was ever articulated to me, which was this idea of generous leadership, right? That it's not about being bossy or not being bossy. I'm not giving up the word bossy. I love it. And I'm proud to be a very bossy person. But it is this idea of a generous leader doesn't need to lead all the time. A generous leader creates opportunities for other people to lead. It's not about whether or not people are going to like you if you're always the leader. It's about, are you bringing everyone in? Are you getting the best of everyone? And I think that framework gets us closer to a place where it's not just that girls get to lead. It's that girls and women get to redefine leadership in a way that is more expansive for everyone. I'm glad you brought up your daughters because I was going to ask, like, how is it to, uh, I have two boys and living and breathing at a company that is run by women, looks at women and shoes all day long. It's like, God was like, this girl needs a break. She needs, she needs a palate cleanse. Yeah. I frequently come home and I'm like, just like, don't be assholes. Like (laughs) I have very cute little boys, but it kind of gives me a break. But it's not just boys who can be assholes. Right. Right. Like that's, and that's part of it is that we're all operating within these systems where we develop expectations of how women should be and how men should be. And I think there's now a greater body of work about the fact that like the way we define leadership isn't fair to men either. Because what it means is that, you know, I always use the example of if a woman gets angry at work, it is a huge and immediate demerit that when a man gets angry at work, people assume that something external has happened to him that has made him angry. When a woman gets angry at work, the assumption is that there's just something fundamentally wrong with her, that she is internally angry, not externally motivated. The corollary for men is crying or being emotional at work, that it's like there is no faster way as a man in the office to lose credibility than to start crying. That's absurd. I want to work with people who are passionate about their work. I want to work with people who are invested in their friends and their family and care very deeply. So in as much as women really struggle with the fact that we've so narrowly defined leadership to be one very specific thing, there are also lots of men who struggle with it. Do you feel like you wear two different roles in your life? Like how different is your personal role from your professional? And do you feel like you're switching? I feel like my objective and my purpose at work is so clear, which is it is to inform, it is to bring forth the facts, and it is to call BS when I sense that there is BS. And a big part of my ethos is also just to make sure that we keep people who are most impacted at the center of stories, which feels very much aligned with who I am as a person. But yeah, there's a little bit of uh, Sasha Fierce thing that happens where it's like, this is this is the job. This is the role. I'm not Alicia, who I am in all the other hours. I'm Alicia, whose job it is, is to provide this very specific service. And so there's a little bit of a duality there. I actually appreciate the fact that there's some demarcation. Okay. So we are going to ask Alicia and ask an expert question. You get to be the expert. Our skim money newsletter audience is dying to know, how can you avoid getting caught up in the likability trap at work? What are some actionable takeaway things that you have seen people do in a professional setting that have helped them? This is my absolute favorite piece of advice, and it's one that you can employ immediately, which is 
the vast majority of feedback that women get is critical subjective feedback. People love to talk to us about how we sit in a chair, how we talk too much with our hands, whether our voice is too high, too low, whatever. And often you get that feedback because someone pulls you aside in the hallway and they tell you. Sometimes, though, you get these pieces of feedback where you are told you are too much or too little in a more formal review. And there's an executive coach who I reference in the book, what she coaches her clients on is that if I were to say to you, Danielle, everybody loves you, but sometimes you are just seen as not taking up enough oxygen or enough space, that you would say, thank you so much for that feedback. Can you draw a line for me from how you perceive my style to how it impacts the results of the work? Now, there's the possibility that the person will be able to connect those dots for you, right? That I'd be able to say, Danielle, I know that you pride yourself on being deliberative, but sometimes that shows up as indecision. Just last week, you were tinkering with the fonts on the deck and it meant we were 24 hours late in delivering it to the client. Okay. That is actual feedback that you can then go back and employ in your day-to-day work. A lot of the time, when you push back and ask someone to connect their feedback on your style to the actual results of your work, they got nothing. And so it kind of kicks them back on their heels and forces them to think about whether or not they would say that to someone else. The other piece of feedback that I found really helpful is that when someone says to you, you know, you don't take enough oxygen or you're too assertive, that you ask compared to whom? Like, would you say that about Joe? Would you say that about Debbie? How much of this analysis is mired in perceptions around, we've talked a lot about gender, but can also be race or sexual orientation or any other type of marginalization in the office that changes people's perception of you? So those two questions, align from the style to the work compared to whom, I think they're great. And I also think for those of us who are managers, flip that on its head before you give a piece of feedback on someone's work. How would you tie it to the impact it has on the team or results that they actually produce? How much of it is just that the way they are is different than the way you are, and that is fundamentally difficult? That's really interesting. And it it actually goes back to a piece of feedback that I got early in my career, which was don't compare yourself to other people in the workspace. But I think in this context, it is helpful in that framing. Because you're asking the other person to compare you. Yeah. (laughs) I agree with you. Don't compare yourself. What's the worst piece of advice you've gotten about this trap for yourself along the way? I don't know that it's any single piece of advice that is the worst piece of advice. I think the way that I used to metabolize advice was terrible. I used to think that every piece of feedback that was given to me was a piece of feedback that needed to be immediately implemented. And the truth is you have a choice when people give you feedback. You can say to yourself, does this fit? I often recommend bringing it to a kitchen cabinet of people you trust to say, hey, I got this piece of feedback. Does it sound like me? And if you have the right kitchen cabinet, they will know you well enough. And you can also let feedback go. I mean, because I am on air as a journalist, I have a history of getting pieces of feedback that would be HR violations in any other industry, right? Like people love to talk to you about your hair. And I remember very early in my career, I had hair that was, you know, like a lat, it wasn't a lattice more set long. My hair doesn't grow that long, but it was like past my shoulders. And I walked in and an executive was like, you really need to cut your hair. So I went home and I got my hair cut and I came back the next day and a different executive was like, well, what did you do to your hair? And I was like, I did what the person in the office next to you suggested that I do. Now, it won't be your hair for everyone, but I do think it is a good example of 
a lot of feedback is subjective. And so you do need to have some type of North Star for yourself that is pointing you in the direction of what is helpful and useful and what is just worth disregarding. Final question. Who is someone else we should have on the show? One of my favorite people I ever interviewed on Latina to Latina was Sochi Gonzalez, who wrote the New York Times bestseller, Olga Dies Dreaming. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about Sochi's trajectory is she was like maybe 40 and she had a good job and she was happy and she was just sort of going to write on the side. And she had a friend who took her by the shoulders and was like, you're not married and you don't have kids. You're completely free. Like, go for this all the way. And she did. And I think so often we don't hear stories of the the flip side of unmarried, no children, which is like she was unencumbered. She was able to go take a big risk. And I love that notion. That is a great suggestion. We will follow up if you can introduce us. Alicia, thank you so much. Congratulations on everything. And we appreciate your time today. Danielle, I can't believe we have flipped this microphone 10 years later. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise.